0: Welcome to Motherhood Exposed. Join me, Zoe Cresswell, mum of two and a UK-trained midwife and doula, as I meet with an array of amazing women navigating life and motherhood. Since becoming a mum for the second time, after my own complex journey, I've become more and more aware that motherhood is so unique. There's no one story the same, and women need support now more than ever. I hope by allowing mothers to openly speak out, we can help to break the silence around many topics. We need to shout out that there is no normal, and that is something we need to embrace. Motherhood isn't always picture perfect, so let's bust some myths, realign expectations, and share the journey together. Hello. Thank you for joining me for another episode. Today, I speak to the very lovely and even more talented Vicky Gooden. Vicky talks me through her long fertility journey before having her precious girl, Elodie, who at 13 months old was diagnosed with a congenital heart condition that required open heart surgery. Drawing on her family's experience and knowing she needs to normalise differences for her little girl, Vicky has written a beautiful children's book celebrating that some people have scars and how wonderful it is that we are not all the same. Hi Vicky, how are you?
1: Oh, hi, Zoe. I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on.
0: Thank you very, very much for coming. Um, I really appreciate you coming and speaking with me today. So as you know, um, because you've just told me you've listened to a few of the shows, which is really kind. Thank you. Um, I start the recordings with asking you how you met your husband. But I just want to ask you actually one more thing about your husband, John, because um, I tend to do a bit of like Instagram stalking, general social media stalking on people before I have them on the podcast. So I was looking at John's Instagram. What is it with flicking things into cups? What's that all about? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, he'll be so happy with this mention. <laughs> uh, so I mean, he just has this ability of uh, placing a teacup uh, about two meters away from him and throwing up a teabag and punching it and it, it gets straight into the teacup first time.
0: I have to be honest, <laughs> I was quite impressed. I showed it to my husband as well. He's like, that, that's a good aim.
1: <laughs> and, just, is a good thing.
0: <laughs> and how did he discover this talent?
1: I mean, who knows? It's locked down. I mean, well, <laughs> clutching at straws now right I don't know it's, just anything to pass the time but yeah it's a new a new thing that he's found that he's extremely good at so wow little, um, him now so that's quite funny <laughs> Tea everywhere, so. um yeah
0: <laughs> so it's just another reason to fall, fall even more in love with him is it oh,
1: sure <laughs> <not.
0: Yeah. laughs> so tell me how did you and John meet
1: um so long story short kind of online oh. um but with a bit more of a backstory, so we have mutual friends which we didn't really know, um, and uh, he'd played football with a couple of people that I'd been to school with, um, and back in sort of the days when Facebook was the sort of leading social media, um, I think he contacted one of my friends, uh, the mutual friends, and said, "You know who's Vicky? I've seen a photo on of her on your on your profile. Who is she?" Um, which is oh, all and then so my friend Matt. Um, then sort of said to me, you know, expect a friend request, um, and I got a friend request, and it was from John Gooden. And um, did you get
0: a poke? That was Facebook, wasn't it? No, you, I don't know. What you poked each other. <laughs> Weirdly, sure
1: you know, a blatant poke versus a friend request. I can't remember now. Um, but um, but yeah, I accepted the friend request because I've been given the heads up, and yeah, I had just come out of a relationship actually, and was just not interested. I was working at a record label at the time, and I was having very late nights at gigs, and just enjoying my sort of, you know, foray into my sort of initial career in marketing, and just wasn't interested in a relationship at all. So the poor guy ended up just talking to me online for three months. That's why I call it more sort of online dating, really, because we ended up talking for three months before I kind of said, okay, yeah. I'll meet up with you. <laughs> um, but just before we met up, actually, it it turned out that on my sort of drive, on my route to work, every single morning, I'd actually end up driving past his house. Oh, how funny! Um, so bizarre. So he, yeah, we were quite local to each other in the end. So and, did
0: he end up standing outside in his like? Well, it is like just in his, his pajama pants.
1: <laughs> yeah, just waiting. waiting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I wouldn't put it past him to be honest. But, um, <laughs> desperate times but yeah it, it sort of transpired that one morning on my drive to the train station I sort of was pulled up at a red light and I, it was just really odd he was then pulled up in the opposite direction at the same red light Yay. we ended up just sort of looking at each other it's the first time I'd seen him move you know he'd only been texts really on a on a screen before funny. so we sort of saw each other and I think I did a weird point he waved <laughs> And then I was just like, oh, please, let the lights change. This is unbearable. And then the lights changed and that was that. And then, you know, from there, the text after that was, should we just probably meet up now?
0: That is so (laughs) funny.
1: I eventually agreed.
0: (laughs) And what was it like meeting him for the first time after talking for so long?
1: Well, it was actually uh, a bit of a, uh, a meeting with a couple of us, actually. So it wasn't just him and I. Um, the mutual friends that sort of connected us, joined us. We went to a pub, a local pub. And it was fine. You know, I think, you know, when, by the time we'd actually met in person, we knew so much about each other. We'd had so many sort of in-depth conversations that by the time we actually met, it was really natural and we could just pick up, you know, oh, how's your mum? And how, you know, yeah. we just knew so much about each other by that point. It was actually quite a sort of bonding experience to have that three months where we just sort of spoke on online. Yes. Um, Ooh, felt very natural and then we moved in quite quickly actually after that I moved into his flat um uh, yeah so I think we were dating for like yeah, two two and a bit years before we were engaged no um, and there we, we go and a couple of years after that
0: amazing and as I say the rest is history so um <laughs> when did you start um trying for a baby
1: well I mean this this takes us back to 2014 so we were married in 2011 and sort of had this agreement that, you know, oh, I'm obviously super fertile, you know, so I'm obviously super fertile. It's gonna take no time at all. The second I come off the pill, I'm we're gonna be having babies, left, right, and center. That was my that, I was so <laughs> I was so sort of sure of that. Um and so we started naturally at the yeah, the end of 2014, you know, kind of went into it having you know fun with it, really, not really <laughs> tracking or any of that sort of stuff that you then sort of fall into when things become a bit more serious but just sort of giving it a go nothing was happening and it kind of it knocked me a bit confidence wise because I was so sure about you know I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be a mum you know this is supposed to happen for me for us I don't understand why month on month it's not mm. um, and so you then we then started you know buying the ovulation kits and you know every month that sort of rolled past um I was becoming sort of I felt like I was getting, I was going mad. <laughs> like, you know, why is this not happening? I don't understand it. I was getting to the point with ovulation where I was trying to get it down to the right hour that we had yeah. to have sex, you know, and, and by the really- so romantic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, really. And it just knocks all the romance <laughs> out. The Relationship just becomes this kind of process, like a scientific experiment, <laughs> really. No. Um, so I, yeah, we bought the really expensive, the hundred pound- ovulation kit, which is, you know, supposed to really help us. And then I started Googling all sorts where, you know, I'd buy this stuff that you squirt up inside you to help the, the sperm swim. You know, wow. I was just going completely crazy with, you know, I'm desperate for this to happen. And every mm-hmm. month that was passing by and I was getting a negative test, I was just like, what else can I be doing? I must be doing something wrong or we must be doing something wrong. Um, so did the trips back and forth to the GP sort of raising the alarms a little bit with him um but by that point it was a year 18 months of trying naturally okay Um, which i think is kind of standard or used to be you know if you went to your gp after three months they'd naturally say you know
0: no yeah
1: i think it's a year isn't it yeah so i think we got to a year 18 months and then had the you know the sort of routine blood tests my amh so my sort of egg reserve level came back as low but not not dramatically low it's kind of on the cusp of low to normal (laughs) I'm sort of in the teens, Um, but that was still alarming for me. Um, I didn't really understand why, you know, I I thought I'd been quite healthy through my life. Uh, I didn't understand. I was still, I think I was 33, 34 at this point. Um, So still, you know, not quite at that 35 horrible red flag. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone, you know, will tell you that, you know, from 35, everything just decreases. All downhill. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just no point. Um, (laughs) So... Yeah, I, I just didn't understand it. So that knocked me again, you know, finding out my sort of egg reserve was on the low, the low side. And um, yeah, just sort of went from there. We, it wasn't until 2016. So two years after sort of trying um, that we were referred for further tests. And given what I'd sort of told my GP over the years about my periods, he sort of referred me to a gynae. A gynecologist um, who, when I told him about my symptoms and what had been going on, he said, You know, this sounds like we could be dealing with endometriosis. And I remember John and I sitting in the room with this gynecologist, and I knew what endometriosis was because for the last two years I'd Googled all the possible reasons why I wasn't getting pregnant, mm. <laughs> um, and endo had come up as one of those po- possibles. Um, so when this guy said endometriosis, I immediately was like, oh no, 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 I don't, I don't want to have that. Thank you very much. And <laughs> I know that that's really impacted yeah. and I'm just not here for that. Yeah. Thank you. But thanks for the answer, um, but no. Yeah, thank you, you for <laughs> throwing that in there. I'm not <laughs> interested. Um, and John, I think was quite alarmed because I, I guess the term endometriosis sounds quite, you know, severe or, mm. you know, it's like a disease. And yeah, it's it a is. condition. Yeah. It's a condition. Yeah. So So John was sat next to me just going like searching my face for, you know, what is this? What is this? Is this really serious? And essentially, yes, it can be. Um, and it just, at that point, getting that diagnosis, which or getting that, you know, suggestion of a diagnosis kind of made me it sounds ridiculous in a way, but kind of made me relax a little bit more. I think he he sort of, the gynaecologist said to me, we're going to have to do an operation um and if we find endometriosis we would treat it then and there um so that was the next step but I think just having it mooted that I I had something that could explain my infertility mm-hmm. sounds bizarre because I didn't want the condition but it gave me something to sort of pin everything up. yeah you
0: know, no and it also is- maybe you can if you can fix that you can fix the
1: infertility perhaps then yeah exactly yeah. so I think it wasn't a, a very long way at all I you know I had a private health thankfully so I ended up having a a laparoscopy and a hysteroscopy in the same uh, procedure. And I woke up really sore from that procedure. And so sort of I knew actually they've done something while I was under, you know, anesthetic and, um, yeah, I had two, stage two to three endometriosis, which the most severe case is stage four. Um, it was found my ovaries were completely webbed in endometrial wow. patches. One ovary was completely in the wrong position so it was completely sort of thrown over the other side and webbed down completely um yeah so I, ha- I had endo
0: and and did they feel the the hysteroscopy was successful did, did they feel they could they were able to help
1: yeah so he came out you know the, the gynecologist said you know we found it this is a possible cause for infertility um at stage two to three it kind of tells you that there's a lot a lot of endometriosis going on yeah. it's not so it's endo is so difficult to sort of talk about in a way because you can have stage four and have no symptoms. Right. You can have stage one and just be in incredible pain. Mm. Um so stage two to three, it it was kind of pointing to the fact that I had loads of different areas covered in endo. It was to do with the amount of endometriosis found. Um, and he said to me, you know, we've cleaned it up. We've, you know, we've taken as much away as we can. I think what they do is a mixture of burning it off and mm. cutting it away. Mm. Um, he said, so, you know, you're good to go. You know, you should be really super fertile now for the next three months, give it a good go. And then we'll see you in three months. But he kind of said, I'm expecting you to be pregnant. Wow. So we left the hospital thinking, okay, you know, now we can really get, get the ovulation out, off we go. <laughs> um, so I was super excited um, and again just having something that I could I guess blame my infertility on uh, to that point and to your point you know now it's been treated and yes it will come back because that's just the nature of endometriosis but now that it's been treated this should mean you know blue skies ahead really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do things progress after? after <laughs> We, we tried for those three months. I mean, we really went for it. You know, legs up the wall, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, this is our moment. Again, and the romance
0: definitely isn't dead.
1: <laughs> exactly. Pillows under the bottom. <laughs> I mean, just absolute madness. um But yeah, tried, uh, tried as best we could, and got to the end of three months and still no pregnancy. And I just couldn't believe it. I was just like, well, what? what now you know what what can I pin this on now yeah Um, and alongside you know I'm I'm of a certain nature where if I am diagnosed with something I go all in on researching it and changing what I can what I can control to try and better the outcome so the minute I was told you've got endometriosis I went all in on my diet my lifestyle um I saw a lady who had written a book on endometriosis and fertility and nutrition I sort of met with her in London and she did a consultation put me on lots of supplements to try and sort of calm down the inflammation within my body and I just I love all of that stuff I love the natural side of it of of trying to you know fix your disease I guess um so I did lots of sort of reducing of inflammation within the body. I took to yoga, reflexology, went on lovely nature walks. So I was trying to balance the kind of medical side with everything that I've been through with a more holistic, natural, what can I take control of? Because right now I'm feeling quite out of control.
0: Um,
1: And so yes, at the end of those three months, I just didn't understand why when I'd sort of married all the, the natural stuff with, you know, the operation, why was I still not, still not pregnant? Um, Yeah, so we were sort of approaching two years of trying at this point, I was approaching 35. And so husband and I just sat down and said, should we look into IVF? Um, And that led us on to doing research into the types of clinics because they're, you know, once you leave the world of trying naturally and going into the world of IVF, it's a whole other, wow, just mind blown with how much you have to take in. Mm even you know what one clinic offers versus another clinic Mm -hmm. um yeah it was a whole new world that I had to explore
0: and it's also about finding a clinic that it's a bit like buying a house that you know it feels right and it's it's the right place for you and and because you do like the holistic side of things as well that we're going to respect that side of you as well and, and not just be medical medical
1: exactly and actually that's where we ended up we ended up at a clinic in London that sort of prided itself on we don't go all in on all the drugs we follow your natural cycle oh, amazing we believe that you just need one egg you just need one good egg you know we really we really believe in that and and it just felt very much in keeping i went to an open evening where they sort of showed how they how they approach the process and they had a couple of patients talking and i just felt okay this is the one for me i know there are other clinics where they go sort of more aggressive and
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're sort of almost I don't know they, they try and say you're sort of guaranteed a good outcome, but mm. it just didn't feel that kind of approach. just didn't feel it felt too aggressive for me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we went with one of the first clinics that we actually researched uh, and felt really good about that. So yeah, we we started the process. Um, I think it was the, yeah, the March 2000, yeah, 2017, I think. But the initial part of the process was fine for us. Um, I know it's not for everyone but from the stimulation point to egg collection we had a really good uh a really good time of it really we had 14 (laughs) collected oh wow (laughs) I know and I wasn't expecting that because of my AMH but 14 collected 11 were mature 10 fertilized 5 got to day 5 blastocysts well done so I was just like okay this is this is our moment now (laughs) you know we've overcome some hurdles and it's going to be, you know, from here on in, we're good. Um, so we went in for our fresh transfer and that's when things started going a little bit wrong for us. So, you know, legs kimbo in Kimbo in the IVF clinic, really excited, first embryo about to be transferred, catheter goes in and I hear very clearly uh, from uh, the clinicians, we found a lump, we can't get into your womb. Oh gosh. And at that point I just thought, well, this is this isn't happening. This can't be happening. Um and they had someone else come in to try and get the catheter in through my cervix and into my womb. Yeah. And they did not they just could not get the embryo into my womb. And again, that just completely knocked because, well, this isn't, I expected to come out of this clinic today with an embryo in my womb.
0: (laughs) And also you're Um, so, you know, you've completely prepped your body. This is the the prime time to do it. And it's taken a long time to get you to this stage for this to happen.
1: Yeah. And actually the pain that I experienced within that moment as well, not just sort of mentally, but also physically, they were literally poking this catheter and I could feel it hitting a dead wall, dead end. Oh, yeah um and so they took took everything out and they said we're gonna have to freeze your embryos so yeah that's this is the new plan you're gonna go home today without what you thought you were gonna have to freeze everything and we're gonna have to do some surgery to find out why we can't get into your into your womb so I thought I'd left all my surgery behind with you know the end of it hadn't
0: been discovered in the hysteroscopy
1: then no exactly you think it would have because they obviously they went in that way as well but No, nope. um, apparently not. So the, the plan was to have a scan and, you know, I mean, even just the word lump takes you into a whole new like, oh my word, they found a lump. What yeah. is it? Um, turns out via a scan that it wasn't a lump. It was just my cervix has a really acute angle into my womb. Um, so they just couldn't sort of navigate that angle, um, which is just crazy. So I then went into months of surgeries. The plan was to try and dilate my cervix so that when they were going in for IVF and going in with the catheter, that they could actually navigate that angle to get into my womb. Um, so I had surgeries. I I mean, this is a whole other podcast in itself, I guess, but I had six months worth of of surgeries where I was supposed to be going in for a 30 minute procedure to try and navigate the, the situation. I'd end up under for three hours. I oh ended God. up with a, a hole in my womb where they tried and poked in the wrong <laughs> in the wrong place. Oh, they, <laughs> they created a false passage. So then, you know, my headspace was just like, okay, I'm trying to get pregnant. I've got this angle that isn't working, and now I've got a hole in my womb, <laughs> which doesn't sound very in keeping with trying no. to get pregnant. that doesn't that sounds leaky to me (laughs) Um, so (laughs) not happy about that and I started to feel completely out of control again I started I felt myself detaching from my body if you like yeah I sort of look down and just be like I don't know what's going on inside there I don't know how to change that this is is clearly a structural issue inside me there's nothing I can do about that Maybe it goes some way to, to explain why we never got pregnant naturally. If my insides are so, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just at a car park, you know, going round and round and round. What's, oh. there, what's going on in there? Um, so I started feeling really out of control again. Um, so, you know, again, sort of going back to the, the kind of nature that I have, I sort of threw myself into all the natural stuff again. So I started acupuncture, anything I could do to try and help, I guess, more my mental well being at this mm. point cause I started to really distrust my body. Mm. I, I, yeah. And just the control aspect had just gone out of the window again. I just felt detached from everything. Um, so the plan then with the, the IVF clinic was to always have a mock transfer before an actual transfer right. to make sure they could get into my womb, which made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but a few of those ended up being quite traumatic because, again, just being poked, poked, poked with a catheter yeah. and, and not being able to do it. They ended up going down this false passage as well. It was just a crazy time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the new plan then ended, ended up being that I would be sedated for every transfer because they thought actually if I'm feeling quite, you're more relaxed, nasty, maybe. Tense, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And I was feeling tense, you know. Well, sedated <laughs> I, it got to a point where I was just like, "Can everyone just get out? <laughs> can Everyone just leave me alone. Like, leave my downstairs, my vagina alone, please. Yeah. I'm, I'm, fed up, I'm fed up of being poked, looked at, prodded. You know, whispers about what's going on down there. I'm, 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 I'm on the edge of like giving up here. I think because this doesn't feel like the way you're supposed to get pregnant. Mm. This feels like really hard work. Now, my mental well-being has taken an absolute nosedive." So actually, the the suggestion of being sedated was a welcome thing for me. I just thought, well, let's give that a go because if I'm if I'm away in sort of dreamland somewhere, they can do what they need to do. Hopefully, I'll wake up with an embryo inside me, um, and that's eventually what happened. Wow! <laughs> so yeah, I got to the point where we had we had transfers. We had a um, our first transfer was in I think it was the, yeah the March. And I'd taken some time off work to try and prepare for that. I just knew that I couldn't, I had to go all in on this. I had to focus on pregnancy. Mm-hmm. we had been through. Um, we only had, I think it was five embryos left in the freezer. And this is like three years after starting trying. Yeah, exactly. And so I just, yeah, I just had to sort of focus on pregnancy. So I needed some space and mind space and sort of head space really. And went in for first transfer and no pregnancy. And actually, I, it sounds funny, I was fine with that. I didn't, I never expected to get pregnant first time. I I don't know why. I just didn't. I was quite prepared for it to take a little bit of time, given what we'd been through. So I came out of that first attempt and I was just like, okay, you know, no problem. I've got, I had two more months off work, I'd taken a sabbatical, and I just thought, you know, second time lucky and because they're now all frozen all of our embryos we can effectively do one transfer a month there's nothing stopping we haven't got to do any stimulation or anything like that um so went into the april second transfer and pregnant but the call that i got from the clinic was a message of well you're not not pregnant (laughs) i was like can we just be clear? Yeah, Am I that's... pregnant? <laughs> Am I not pregnant? <laughs> um, and the reason for them saying that was that my HCG level was so low, even though it was doubling um, within the certain, you know, fixed time frame that it had to, mm. it was low. So they said, you know, you're not, not pregnant. We're just going to have to keep a really close eye on this. Mm. Um, fast forward maybe five or six days from there, I was at home. John was just on a plane coming back from a work trip. Um, I think he just touched down actually Um, and I was just sitting watching telly and I started having cramps and I just thought "Mm, cramping can be normal you know (laughs) at this point in your fertility journey you know that cramps can be normal and could be a good sign and all this stuff so I just thought okay don't panic I just sort of was rooted to my spot on the sofa and uh, tried not to panic I was texting my best friend just saying look I'm having some cramps and then I went to the toilet and, and had some blood pass and I just thought, okay, this is now different. Perhaps mm. this, is not, this is not great. And then pain that I have never experienced happened. And I remember being upstairs in my bathroom, holding onto the, the sink unit and just gripping on my knuckles were white. And I, I thought I was gonna pass out. The pain was unbelievable that I was experiencing. And again, I was, I couldn't get hold of John. I was on the phone to my best friend on text. And she said that the texts were becoming really weird. Like my messages were not clear. Mm. And so she just called an ambulance. She said, I'm calling an ambulance, ambulance turned up. And by that point I was on the floor by the front door. I just couldn't, I couldn't stand. I felt, I, I felt like my body was just being ripped in two um, and rushed to a and And they sort of obviously confirmed that I was having a miscarriage but they couldn't locate the pregnancy. So it wasn't in my womb. It wasn't in my fallopian tubes. uh, And it wasn't until a few hours later that they detected that it was a cervical ectopic, which is super rare. Yeah. Um, But again, I just couldn't believe what was happening. And just I started to maybe not at this point, but in hindsight, draw, draw a sort of line between. Okay, so I had problems with my cervix during IVF, as in they couldn't get into my womb. Now I'm having problems with my cervix because I'm having an ectopic in my cervix. And so, yeah, it just it was just the most awful experience, um, the, a pain like no other. I felt very alone. I remember being in hospital, I think I was in hospital for six days um, and ended up having to have a methotrexate injection in my thigh to end the, end the sort of cells developing. Mm. And that just felt, even though I knew the pregnancy wasn't viable, mm-hmm. it's in my cervix, this is my first ever pregnancy. I've never been pregnant naturally. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. was our, you know, this was our time. And having that injection really signified something very, very sad for me. I knew I was losing the pregnancy. I knew it wasn't viable, but just that injection going into my thigh, I just thought, I'm, I'm killing, I'm ending the thing that I want more, in that, that I've ever wanted, you know, mm-hmm. that I want more in the world. Um, and yeah, it was just a very awful, awful time. And it was then that I decided to sort of write about it. So I had until that point, I'd never really spoken about infertility or that we were trying for a baby. I'd never put out on social media that we were trying. Um, all I'd spoken about at that point was endometriosis because the minute I found out about that, I wanted to find people like me and I wanted Mm. to help that conversation and try and, you know, bring it to the forefront a little bit more. Um, And I just remember sitting in the hospital bed while this ectopic was going on and just putting something on social media on my Instagram and then connecting with someone else at that moment, somewhere else in the country who was also in hospital having an ectopic. And we ended up just talking on Instagram, just sort of saying, how are you doing? Have you had the injection? All this kind of stuff. And I felt like, you know. I'm not alone here yeah. and I think we'll talk about it. It can only be helpful and it helped me mentally writing just helps me. It just always has. So I wrote about it. I then tracked my journey really and started writing more blogs about it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really, really horrible experience. Um, and after the methotrexate injection, I think it's a form of chemotherapy that because it essentially stops cells from dividing. Um, so we were told do not get pregnant for the next three months minimum because you're now kind of toxic inside um, and that will not be a good environment for a a baby. Which is really really hard as well, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, don't get pregnant. I'm actually quite good at that. (laughs) very good at not getting pregnant, don't worry about that. Um, But I think I'd set my sights on this three month period of we're going to get pregnant in these three months which might sound a bit like you know lose control of it Vicky you know you might not but I was so focused that you know we had an, an extra month left of my sabbatical so the May was an extra month and that ended up being a healing month because we couldn't get pregnant mm. I was healing the ectopic mentally and physically and so yeah it just felt like okay I'm going back to work and I'm not pregnant and now what do we do you know um, yeah a really really difficult time we uh were sort of gearing up then for the last attempt uh so fast forward to the September so that was the April we took more time you know we took more time as a as a couple yeah to reflect on that and just to see what was what and I wanted that time because I think I'd had that injection and it, I, I did feel quite toxic and it was so against what I'd worked for you know yeah. i, I working so hard on my well-being and my mm-hmm. diet and my lifestyle that I was just like oh I'm now just full of yeah. horrible stuff <laughs> so I wanted time to sort of look at that and try and prepare myself and prepare my body and make it the most welcoming environment for a pregnancy mm-hmm. so again I went all in on that mm-hmm. from Reiki to acupuncture to doing a liver cleanse um meditation oh I just went all in and like I love. The healthiest was, women on the planet at the time. It was at that point. I mean, not yeah. so much not after lockdown, but um, <laughs> I, I was then. I was in really good shape um, doing lots of yoga, etc. And I felt good. I felt like, okay, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> this is our time. Um, and so it was the September we had, uh, we decided to put two, our last two remaining embryos in. I don't know why I did two. I remember having a, a meeting with the IVF clinic, and I just sort of questioned them. You know, what are the benefits or or risks of putting two in at once? And you know, the lady just sat down with me, and she gave me you know some really good information. Mm-hmm. And I just I just felt really strongly that I we're going to put two in. Yeah. And it was a risk because there were our final two. Um, but just went for it. Yeah. Put two in. I remember so clearly the morning of the transfer. Um the embryologist sort of came in and said, right, you, they've both thawed, they both thawed really, really well, but there's one that's raring to go. There's one that is like, that is, that is really ready. <laughs> and I like to think of that as my daughter that I have now, because um, <laughs> this, this, that round of IVF did result in a pregnancy in my womb. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> woo-hoo! Um, and ended up eight, eight months, eight months, nine months later, With my actual daughter so got there in the end
0: (laughs) well done amazing and how was the pregnancy
1: well um i had a bleed at seven weeks um and i i don't know what happened to me but i just i packed a hospital bag i just assumed okay well i'm i'm losing this one again i just i I thought the chances of having another ectopic i think are slightly increased if you've had one before Mm. so i just packed a hospital bag (laughs) took myself off to hospital (laughs) And just thought you know okay right it hasn't worked obviously completely devastated um but when i was checked over the guy was like you actually have no active bleeding it's all sort of old and old shed of blood um your hcg is really high um so we think it's fine go home and rest um it was then that i was actually tested positive for group b strep which mm-hmm. I didn't really know about if I'm honest I had no knowledge of what that was at all at that point But because they'd done a a swab because of the bleeding they just did a a test and it came back positive so that was something that I had to consider throughout the pregnancy Mm. um but the pregnancy itself was you know up and down really I kept it all off social media I felt very protective of this growing bump I didn't want anyone to know um we didn't tell some family until sort of 13 14 Mm -hmm. weeks yeah Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to keep it very, very much to myself, which I guess can be seen as selfish in some ways, but I just felt so super, super protective of this bump. Um, so yeah, that was, that was just my decision in, in the end in full protection mode. So lots of sickness. Um, I remember on my way to work having, you know, to find a bin at the train station to oh, throw no. up. <laughs> um, so I sort of went from, you know never experiencing pregnancy to experiencing all the things you can possibly experience. (laughs) 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 Lots of sickness um, Had some very strange pain that would swoop under my bump from sort of the top of my bum round to under my bump and it would render me just, I wouldn't be able to move. And no one really knew what that was. It was sort of chalked up as round ligament pain. Yeah. I was going to say round ligament. Um, But yeah, I'm not sure if it was that, I don't know what it was, but it was horrific. Um, I then also got a condition called hip bursitis, which I didn't know was a thing. Um, And neither did my GP and neither did my, my midwives, but basically in pregnancy, especially in the sort of later, the later stages or mid to later stages, you're not supposed to sleep on your back. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're supposed to sleep on your sides, Mm -hmm. but I got a condition called hip bursitis, which meant that my hips when pressed against, or, you know, when you're lying down on them, Mm burn they would act, they'd be like on fire oh no so I found it very difficult to to sleep and get comfortable and it was actually my yoga teacher at the time that diagnosed me because no one else knew what was going on my yoga teacher um a lady called Ryan she she just said it sounds like bursitis and the minute I googled bursitis I was like oh that's what I've got that's it's me both- that's
0: me <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's me yes I'm- I've got another weird thing <laughs> um And it's basically, in different areas of your bodies. you have bursa, which are like shock absorbers. Um, And in pregnancy, when that um, relaxing hormone is released, Mm -hmm. um, it it ends up sort of inflaming some of these bursa areas and my hips were where where that was uh, happening. So I was in incredible pain. So a lot of sleepless nights before having a baby, which wasn't ideal. No, and did it go after she was born? The second she was born. Wow. So it's purely, purely pregnancy related, Gosh. but I wrote about that on my blog as well. And actually that's been one of the most um, popular posts because so many women suffer with this actually, and they don't know what's going on or how to how to rem- remedy it. Um, so yeah, that's actually quite something that's done quite well. Um, and then, but I threw myself into the hypnobirthing. I got a doula who was just incredible. Uh, and I made plans for doing placenta encapsulation as well Mm -hmm. so I just wanted to do what I could to make this a really nice you know experience positive experience and joined NCT which I think has been the best thing that one of the best things that we did having that little group of people who completely strangers but you're so bonded you know by this experience so did that as well and had a group of friends going into this so that was really cool to me yeah all in all I, I think I enjoyed it I, I've sort of looked back on it and I I'm not entirely sure but I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I enjoyed it obviously super grateful and thank god it eventually happened and I was here and I loved my bump oh I just loved it Aww. Um, yeah I just absolutely loved just talking to her and singing to her and seeing her move and everything I just yeah absolutely loved that part of it
0: And what was it like on social media when you did announce um, her birth? Because obviously nobody knew you were pregnant. So how was that taken?
1: It was really good. Yeah, the response was amazing. I think people were just completely shocked. Hmm. Um, But yeah, I think through talking about endometriosis, I I sort of gathered a, a following of people who were experiencing fertility issues as well. So I think, you know, it was kind of... I don't know, it's sweet in a way because there's a certain amount of guilt. Once you've been part of that conversation about infertility or endometriosis, then you announce you've had a baby. <laughs> there's a certain level of, Oh, you know, this is gonna, this is gonna upset some people. Yeah. And, you know, that was, I, I was very aware of that. Um, when you're trying for a baby and it's not happening and you're having so many issues and then you see pregnancy announcements that can really hit hit hard mm. so the response was amazing um people were so supportive but i just had that sort of niggling sort of knowledge that this was gonna also upset some people but on you know on the whole it was amazing response. yeah
0: of course it's always really hard when you kind of operate but you you kind of speak in the in the, in the circle of infertility and things and then obviously people want you to have a positive outcome, but when you have that positive outcome, it, it does carry guilt, sadly, um, because you want everybody to have that positive outcome as well. But I guess there's no, I don't really know if there's a way around it because the only way around it is positive outcomes. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's difficult. Can we go on to talk about um, Elodie? So mm-hmm. how old was she when um, it was discovered that she had a, um, a heart condition?
1: Yeah so this took us completely by surprise so she was 13 months old and everything we had been normal to that point healthy bouncing really baby you know she had jaundice at birth but you know that was you know quickly fixed um no other issues at all she'd had maybe one bout of bronchiolitis which can be a marker for a potential heart condition mm-hmm. didn't at the time obviously i mean who knows that <laughs> yeah no um, so it wasn't until she, I think she had a throat infection at 13 months old. Um, she's a, a thumb sucker. So the doctors thought, you know, she's just got so much bacteria going on because she's sucking this little thumb dry. Yeah. That <laughs> she had a throat infection. And so just took her to the GP, expected just to come out with some antibiotics. Um, and GP did obviously use the stethoscope on her chest just to hear of any sort of chest infection as well. Yeah. He said, oh, she's got a slight murmur, a heart murmur. And he said, but don't worry, you know, at times where, you know, little ones have fevers, um, it can, it can affect how the heart sounds. Mm-hmm. So don't worry, come back when she's completely rid of this infection and we'll do another check. So she got over the throat infection, took her back and he said, no, the murmur's still there. And at this point I was obviously Googling like <laughs> and, and, you know, sort of, by and large you you get results that say heart murmurs can be on the on the sort of mo- yeah for the most part completely innocent mm-hmm. and it can indicate a hole in the heart but kids are quite often born with ho- holes in their hearts and they close over time yeah so i sort of went in we got referred to a uh, a cardiologist and i went into that meeting that consultation thinking well we're going to come out of this with just it's an innocent murmur nothing to worry about she was sat on my lap in this, uh, in this consultation. He was doing an ultrasound. I think he also did an ECG. It's a bit of a blur. Um, and John was on my left side. The cardiologist was on my right. And I could see like the monitor with her heart on. Mm-hmm. And I, I just heard the cardiologist say, it's not an innocent murmur. John didn't quite pick that up. John did, And my face must have told a, a real story at that time. I think yeah. I just couldn't believe what was going on. John saw my face, hadn't quite heard what the cardiologist had said, and was like, What's what, what's going on? What's going on? And panic set in. Of course. Um, and you know, meanwhile, I've got this little one-year-old sat on my lap just having a lovely time, <laughs> you know, completely unaware of what's going on and what we're talking about. And yeah, it transpired that she had something called an ASD, which is a, a hole in between the upper chambers of her heart. And it was a sizable hole. That the cardiologist said this is not going to close on its own, so it needs it needs intervention. And so I just remember, I well, I don't really remember, but I I sort of all I could do in that moment was just cling on to her and get the facts. I just wanted the facts. So I went from zero to what's the mortality rate? (laughs) You know, just you know, what is she going to survive this? What is going to go on? And she got the other, you know, I just went into absolute overdrive, getting all the facts. And, oh, the guy, the cardiologist is just an absolute angel of a man. He was so calm. He really reassured us that the type of condition that LAD had, if you're going to choose a heart condition, have that one. Because <laughs> it's I mean, it's the most fixable. Yeah. It's the one with as close to 0.000% risk within surgery. doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. When you're a parent and your child's on your yeah. lap and you're told they need heart open heart surgery, your mind will go to... They could die, you know. Of course, yeah. So it didn't really matter that the the, the stats were on our side, that we were hopefully going to get, you know, one of the best surgeons involved. Didn't matter. I was just, you know, I'd, I'd flip between absolute. She's going to be fine. She's strong. We're going to get through this too. She could die, and, they, and the kind of in between of all of those of, of those two situation scenarios was just a blur just an absolute mess my mind was all over the place as was my husband's and I think it was six weeks later that she was being operated on six or seven weeks later. Wow and am I right in thinking you didn't share that with people as well? Yeah I didn't share that um until it was another sort of way that we did the pregnancy until she was through the surgery um and again, that was a real shock for people that sort of followed us. Obviously, we mm-hmm. told family. And I I remember being quite strict with family pre-surgery. You know, I'm about to tell you something, I don't want you to re- react. Yeah. <laughs> because which is quite selfish because obviously they are allowed to feel whatever they're feeling. But I think the minute someone panicked or looked sad or shocked, it would, I would just radiate that back. And I didn't yeah. want to, I just didn't want to do that. In front of elodie especially so i wanted everyone to be strong and to you know yeah just just sort of see us through it really but it was an absolute roller coaster i remember my one of my lovely friends let us stay in her holiday home in cornwall i think a week or two weeks prior to the surgery and the whole time we were on the phone to like the doctors the nurses trying to get this um this surgery booked in to and actually speaking to like health insurance and stuff and just having these conversations about my tiny little girl who was a miracle baby. Mm. It was just, I, I felt again a detachment between reality and what you know what was going on. I just, yeah. It you was know. a very long time. And how I I don't really know how to ask this question. How was
0: it like how what did you do when she was in surgery? How did you manage that?
1: It was um, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. So we, we went in, I think I totally underestimated what happens prior to a surgery as well. Yeah. So through the x-rays and ECGs and having to get blood, you know, that was traumatic enough, like trying to get a cannula into her little chubby hands or mm. I think her foot in the end because they just couldn't find a vein. She was just, you know, this chubby little one year old <laughs> <laughs> didn't find any veins. Um, so that those experiences even prior to the surgery were just laden with guilt I just I wanted to stop all of this from happening I want to just wrap her up in a blanket leave the hospital and just this is not happening. Yeah. So it was just yeah it was it was awful. And then the morning of the the surgery I had to carry her down to the theater so I carried her down to the theater she's in her little gown um, and she had no idea what was going on absolutely no idea the hospital were amazing they had sort of um people to entertain little ones as they go in and have the anesthetic um they have like a sensory room a playroom so it was all she was finding all that part of it really fun yeah it's exciting <laughs> this is where are we it's like a new adventure playground um and then yeah going down to the sort of the actual theater was just a whole other whole other story holding her in my arms knowing that I was going to be handing her over to. Strangers, essentially. Strangers that I really hope are really good at their job. Yeah, no, that's um,
0: that's the hardest part, isn't it? When you, as oh, a mother, um, having to let go and, and, and leave them. And...
1: Absolutely horrific. So she was on my lap, the bed that they were going to sort of wheel her into the actual theatre. We were in sort of the pre-theatre room, the one room yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Actual, uh, and she was on my lap. They were trying to sort of make her laugh and everything. And then they just brought over the the mask that was going to put her to sleep Mm -hmm. um, because it wasn't via a a needle at first. And they sort of held it to her face. She then got really distraught and she was crying her eyes out in my arms. And they said, actually, this is really good that she's crying because she'll take the more she's gasping the more she'll be be out quicker and she won't know what's going on. And I was like, Oh, so easy for you to say, I don't want any any of this to be happening. Um, And then she just went completely limp in my arms. And handed her over. I just handed her over to people and just left her. And they were so quick to get her all hooked up to all the different machines and everything. And then we walked away. And as we walked away, we were sort of heading back up to the family room in the hospital. We passed the surgeon because we'd met him prior, obviously. Mm -hmm. And he was all, you know, in his his scrubs and stuff. And I don't remember saying anything to him. But John says that I said, please. I said something along the lines of, please do your best ever surgery. Like, (laughs) please. I don't remember saying this. I I really don't. And then he went into the theatre and I think it was supposed to be up to four hours, the surgery. Oh, God. John and I were in the family room. I had written positive affirmations on cards and I was... John was looking at magazines and on his phone and stuff. We both just decided to deal with it however we wanted to. There was no judgment around how we were dealing with this yep. situation. I was eating all the biscuits, all the free biscuits. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't think I would do, but I was just stuffing my face with biscuits. And I was, um, I must have looked like a mad woman. I was just going through these positive affirmations that I'd written. And I put them down. I put them back up again. I'd go through all of them again. And I would just read them out loud or in my head. And I i think I did that for the full time wow. <laughs> the surgery was happening I just would not stop reading these um and so we were prepared for it to be a four-hour surgery two hours later two hours into the surgery the surgeon was back in his suit at the door of the family oh, wow and I looked at him and he said can we go somewhere quiet or something like that can we go to your room oh no and In that moment I my heart, my own heart fell out. Like, I just, I don't know where it went. It just, it, it felt like it fell out of my body. Like, I thought, why why is he not just telling us now that she's fine? Something has happened. And the walk from the family room back to our little hospital room, I couldn't feel, I felt like I was floating. Like, I, I couldn't feel my legs. We got to, the, to our room and he said, it couldn't have gone any better. Oh being <laughs> and at that point, I think, two worlds within me collided. So the relief collided with the absolute fear. And I, I was on the verge of passing out. I had the most weird experience in my body where I had hot tingles in every part of my body. So he went from telling me how amazing my daughter was <laughs> to me, to him going, do you want to have a sit down? Do you want to lie? <laughs> I, had to, I had to lay down on my bed <laughs> in, in our room and I couldn't breathe. I just had this real panic attack. Um, and I just said, "What did you? What did you just say?" Because I wasn't taking anything in. And He said, "She's fine. She's a feisty little thing. Even she's still <laughs> trying to get up and do downward dog." In, oh, <laughs> I love her <laughs> in ICU. And I was like, "Oh my god! Right, okay." He said it couldn't have gone any better. You know, oh, she, wow. we, we, we fixed her heart basically.
0: And why didn't he tell you? Did he? Did you ever ask him?
1: <laughs> I remember back, like. Was it because someone else was in the room? But I don't think any other families were in the room. I think it was just us. But maybe that's just their protocol. I don't. Know. I don't
0: know. But we've all watched too much *Holby City* and *Casualty*,
1: haven't
0: we? <laughs> <laughs> we know what that means.
1: <laughs> *Grey's Anatomy*. Don't get me started on <laughs> So I, I got feeling back in my legs, and I then went into right proper mum mode again. Yeah. When can I see her? And it was, you know, it takes time for them to hook up. A baby after open heart surgery and, you know, onto all the machines in in ICU. So it was a little bit of time, but yeah, I think John and I just kept clinging on to each other, hugging each other, you know, it's done from here on in, she's going to, you know, be super strong now. Um, and yeah, eventually got down to ICU to see her and yeah, the nurses were incredible, like, and just seeing the strength of a one-year-old, um, was yeah, completely blown away. I think we always think that you look to your elders as heroes, but I Mm. ended up just looking at her and just thinking, you at one year old, you're my hero. (laughs) Like, I can't believe what you've been through. And here you are trying to do down my dog.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She's watched her mummy too much, hasn't she? (laughs) And how was her recovery?
1: Really quick. So we were only in hospital for five days. She ended up starting walking, taking her first steps in the hospital. Amazing. Oh, what, her first ever steps? No way! Yeah. Yeah, she started walking at 14 months, but she started doing her proper first steps in hospital while she was still in recovery. So it was, it was like a super-brudged heart. And was no <laughs> um, but no, it went, it went really well. Um, and yeah, she's just gone from strength to strength. And actually, even though she wasn't symptomatic, apart from the heart murmur prior to the surgery, I think what we really noticed after having her heart fixed was her growth spurts were just incredible. Like her energy levels were yeah. increased. And I hadn't thought there was an issue before. Maybe it yeah. was a issue. I don't know, but her energy was increased. Her growth spurts were incre- like just ridiculous. Um, and yeah, she just, I mean, she's just completely blown me away to be honest.
0: And what about um, her future? Is, is there any, 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 you know, is anything expected in, in the future considering the condition?
1: no and I actually think I think it's 2022 where we will have an ultrasound that determines whether they completely discharge her wow um so she's had full up ultrasounds she's had a, about three or four I think in the time since the surgery and everything's fine but your heart my own heart is in my mouth every time we have those of course meetings.
0: yeah absolutely
1: something else or please don't know there'll be an issue with the surgery um but every time we come out of those those appointments it's just you know have her heart is he I think the way he says it is her heart's full of unicorns and stars and it's, oh. you know it's, oh. <laughs> and and at least, so. Is
0: she is she nearly three now? Is that right? me and May, yeah. May. So does she what does she know about her scar and, and the appointments and things?
1: Yeah, so initially obviously she was one when she had the surgery. So mm. when we came home from from the surgery, she I think she still had a, a dressing on her scar and I think you're encouraged to take that I mean much like a c-section maybe you're encouraged to take that off quite quickly to yeah. get the yeah you know um for it to heal uh so you know plonking her in the bath she would quite it was very red and, and yeah of quite course. Red. yeah and still had stitches top and bottom um so she would obviously notice it but as a one-year-old she you're not able to communicate what's that mummy you know all that kind of stuff so she would just look at it and just move on it was just part of her normal I guess mm-hmm. um and then since then, you know, we've, you know, since her sort of communication skills have got better, as she's got older, we've referred to it as uh, a wonderline. And I didn't really know how to talk about it with her. And we haven't sort of talked about it too much because I'm actually waiting for the day where she really notices that actually someone else that she knows doesn't have one. And then yeah. she can see that she does have one and then she'll have questions. Um, but one thing I always made sure of is, in those initial weeks when the wound was really really raw and fresh i just made sure that family friends whenever they saw it i never wanted them to go oh you know yeah, yeah. no don't react show, show her any kind of you know reaction that wasn't positive basically so whenever she would point to it as a, as a, a one year old i'd go wow look at that and i'd really make a big emphasis of you're incredible you're a wonder all this kind of stuff um and I think it's only a matter of time now, you know, she's in nursery now a couple of mornings a week. I think coming out of lockdown, she's going to be around other children a bit more. I think it's a matter of time now before she realizes that maybe she's got something that other children perhaps don't or yeah. that mummy doesn't have. And so I think it's a matter of time when until she starts asking about it. And yeah, so I, I just feel like I'm preparing myself for that, for that moment, I guess. Yeah. I've actually spoken to quite a few adults that have had surgeries of all different types and, they wish that they'd been spoken to about what they'd been through to help give them a story behind their, Mm -hmm. their scars and to help them own that story a little bit more. So I'm preparing myself for, for that day and to sort of give her as much to empower her as much as possible to own her story and to, and to see what wonder she, yeah, she is.
0: And presumably all of this is the inspiration behind your incredible (laughs) new book,
1: The Wonderline. (laughs) So have you read it to her yet? I haven't. No, I haven't oh, yet. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for her. I'm just sort of taking her lead on most things in life at the moment with her development. Yeah. Um, waiting for her to sort of have a question about it. I think because she doesn't have siblings, it could take longer. Cause I yeah. think she, I think if you're around sort of older children, they might point it out. However, mm-hmm. however, and whenever it happens, I will then be prepared to sh- whip out this book that Mummy's written and, <laughs> um, and, and show her her story. And, yeah, I've, I've written this book. I started writing it over a year ago, just pre-COVID craziness um, and found an illustrator uh, yeah, a year ago and just decided to to self-publish this little book, Yeah, My Wonderline. Um, Don't call it
0: a little book. It's amazing. It's absolutely <laughs> oh, incredible. Um, so tell, can you, obviously it's about um, LED, but you also talk about other scars and things as well. Can you talk a little bit about kind of, yeah, what it's about really.
1: Yeah, so it follows a little girl, um, which is obviously inspired by Elodie. We don't name her in the book. I wanted to sort of create a little bit of distance, even yeah. though it's completely obvious that it's me, her, and-, and um, Rupert. Oh, <laughs> yeah, bloody well, Rupert. Um, but I, yeah, it's written about a girl who, over the course of a day, she sort of, as she's getting dressed in the morning, she notices that she has a line. Uh, she's looking in the mirror and she asks her mummy, what is this and mummy then over the course of the book explains that some people have to have surgery and you know when you're having surgery doctors and nurses go in and they create some magic under your wonder line and they leave you with this line and that's why you now have that on your on your skin um and underneath it is is just full of magic and, and wonder and over the course of the day in this book she she goes to the park and she meets a little girl called pearl and she shows her tummy scar that she has um and there's a really lovely page in the book where I want to make little ones feel like they're not alone and there's this really like impactful page that says you're just like me yeah and there's a whole trail of people including the adult that's with her yeah showing their scars yeah um, and when I was doing research into the sort of most common childhood surgeries it was things like CHD like what Elodie had but also things like scoliosis which can yeah, I think most patients of scoliosis have surgery, sort of as more of adolescents, more sort of teens. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to include that in there as well. Um, and there's just this whole, yeah, a line of, of, of people with scars, just sort of proudly showing them off. Um, and I just wanted to, yeah, empower kids and make them feel represented on bookshop shelves that, you know, you've got these lines or line and let's talk about it. So yeah. I hope that I've left enough Spa- I, I sort of explain it as, the, as though, I hope I've left enough space with, between the turning of the pages for an adult with a child in their lap to explain their own story. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to when I talk to Elodie about it, I will say, you know, there was a problem with your heart and we had to get it fixed and you were the super brave one-year-old and mm-hmm. then turn the page and then we look at, there's some other kids with scars. So I, ho- I, yeah, I initially wrote my first draft all about heart surgery and then sort of looking more into the amount of surgeries that happen just in the UK with kids per year, it's in the thousands, I I just thought, actually, let's broaden this out so that more kids feel represented, mm. uh, regardless of where their scar positioning is.
0: No, um, I was actually with a friend um, this morning, just before speaking to you, whose um, eldest son has got cerebral palsy. Um, so he walks... Um, very slightly differently to, to normal kids inverted commas. Um, and I was talking about the book to her. Um, because I didn't feel actually even that it needed to have um because I guess I was reading it from my point of view as a mother to my children um, who who don't have obvious scars. Yeah. Um, and, but to me, it still felt like a very relevant book because it, it celebrates the fact that we're all different and wouldn't it be boring if everybody was the same? And actually, it's a brilliant thing to everybody be different, that we're all different and we bring different things to the world and, and that's what makes us interesting and exciting. And, and so for me... Um, yeah, I just felt it really didn't need to even have have to be about scars as well, that it was just an incredible book that could be on anybody's bookshelf and be relevant to everybody and anybody's child. So I thought it was awesome. I also wanted to comment on them um, because it possibly could be you as the mother in the book. <laughs> I wonder if you had an input on on what clothes you were wearing because they're very funky, high-waisted <laughs> mum jeans. And I loved your bag as well. <laughs> it was more like,
1: oh, I like that. <laughs> Incredible! So the illustrator Angela Mayers, who's just so talented, she has a background in fashion uh, illustration as well. So there you go. Selecting <laughs> her was actually her illustrations are really cool, like they're really quirky, um, especially on the fashion side. So yes, she she made me look really great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. I've fully appreciated your outfit. <laughs>
1: No, it's it's
0: a brilliant book and you should be so proud of it. And what's the feedback been like?
1: Oh, so incredible. I haven't even had time to write a press release yet. I've done very, for a person with a background in marketing, I've done very little. <laughs> <laughs> um, all I've done is put it on my own social media, really. Um, but the feedback's been amazing. And every time I get a comment, especially from a parent of a child with scars, I just burst into tears. <laughs> oh, perfect. Um, that's, the, that's the only fit response, I think. <laughs> what's really nice I'm obviously seeing a lot of photos of babies holding the book and that's so incredible and but what I'm getting um what I'm getting a lot out of is seeing slightly older children actually reading the book Mm. and seeing that actually there was a real need for this um especially around kids that are sort of four five six that are actually talking about their scars and their differences and seeing them hold and read the book and feeling like they want to tell their story that to me, is job done. Yeah, but my ultimate critic is obviously going to be Elodie, so I will wait until she <laughs> she reads it, um, and hopefully she she really likes it. But yeah, the aim was always just to help represent kids that feel slightly different. And I guess the overall aim, to your point, is just to try and cultivate that sense of care and consideration mm-hmm. in kids from as young as a young as age young and an age as possible, because. Mm-hmm um I think you know the old saying that kids can be cruel is 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 real and it really is um but they're also just honest and when they see something they will point and they will ask and that's just the nature of kids but I just want to get to them at a young age around differences and around actually everyone's different and we should Mm -hmm. just be Careful around that and considerate
0: around that as well. Yeah. No, my, my eldest is um, seven. So I've got friends with, you know, obviously similar age kids, maybe slightly older, slightly younger. And it's now that these sorts of stories are starting to come out where I'm hearing um, a friend saying her son's noticed that he's short, or someone's um, telling another friend's daughter that she's, she, that, you know, she's being told she's fat. And, 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 and so I just, yeah, it's so important and it, it's, it's so relevant and so needed. Um, so yes, well done. I just think it's amazing. And, um, and I, yeah, it's brilliant. Thank you so much for writing it and, and sharing it with us all. And will you share Elodie's response as well?
1: Yes, absolutely. When the time comes, I will, I will be on hand to, to tell everyone how she's taken it. Um, I think I'll still be quite careful around not saying that it's her explicitly. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah we'll just see how it goes but yeah I think exciting I'm looking forward to her seeing it. I'm trying to have got you know so many books piled up um in my front room I'm surprised she hasn't yeah she hasn't so it's a matter of time actually she might just discover the book before <laughs> before she talks about the situation but yeah
0: true amazing so at the end of my podcast I'm um, I ask my guest the same question which is um if you were to have coffee with a Um, a female, alive, dead, fictional um, family, who would it be and why?
1: So um, for me, I would love to see my nana again. So my nana died when I was, I think I was just about to start secondary school. So I was about 11, 12. Um, This is my mum's mum. And because I sort of put my mum on such a pedestal as, as how she has been as a mother... I would just love to pick my Nana's brains about how she raised her yeah. <laughs> um, because I, I just remember my Nana being such a huge presence in my life growing up, you know, from, from looking after me when my mum was working to making all of my sequin tutus for my ballet, uh, my ballet dances. Um, ballet shows I would just love to sit down with her and, and ask her about her time and how parenting was back then because my mum just turned into the most incredible mum so she must have done something Aww. brilliant with her um so yeah I think I would just love to see her hear her cackly laugh and just talk about <laughs> how to be a good mum I guess
0: <laughs> oh well well done Vicky's mum hi hi <laughs> nice to meet you <laughs> and have you know well on this have you found yourself saying anything to Elodie that your mum used to say to you
1: so I actually say this mostly in my head. But it's definitely, definitely from my mum. And that is, it'll all come out in the wash. Mm-hmm. And I remember this from um, probably me growing up as I was quite shy. I was quite, quite introverted and things would affect me, you know, things that people would say would affect me. And I, you know, I found some situations growing up quite difficult. And my mum would always just sit me down and say, don't worry, it'll all come out in the wash. And that for me was just, you know, tomorrow's a new day things might not be so bad tomorrow you know um we can just wash away the day basically mm-hmm. and I and I think growing up uh, or watching a little one grow up and, and being a parent for the first time there's a literal sense to that saying like it'll all come out in the wash because you are just covered in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <all> day long <laughs> yep <laughs> um, but then also just any issues that we might face uh, along along the road of parenting. I just think that's a really nice. Don't worry, it'll come out in the wash. Yes. I'm just quite, quite comforted by that.
0: And any um, considering your journey, is there any kind of mum hack slash life hack you could share um, that's helped you along your way?
1: So nothing to do with surgery or anything like that. Um, but I would just say to any new mums, I would just say please load up on tray bake cook- cookery books. <laughs> Well, yeah. I have, found, I have found the management of trying to run a household and nurture and look after a baby so difficult. Um, uh, sort of mostly to do with food and food prep and making sure we're all being fed. Yeah, <laughs> <would just> say, <laughs> annoying you know, thing where we have to eat. <laughs>
0: it's such an inconvenience. <laughs>
1: um, I would just say if you know someone uh, about to have a baby or yeah or a new mum just, you know, buy them a tray bake cookbook because, you know, shoving all, shoving loads of ingredients in one pot, shoving it in the oven at lunchtime that you can then eat at dinner. Done. That is a, happy, yeah. a
0: <laughs> I actually found myself at nine o'clock this morning making dinner. because um, <laughs> so I thought if I don't do it now, I don't know when it's going to get done. <laughs> That's
1: the thing that I found really difficult is just trying to, you know, go back to some sort of normality in terms of routine. When I say routine, you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner—nothing um, <laughs> <laughs> like running and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I just think if you can knock that off the list and uh, yeah, just make that as easy as possible, then you know you're onto something. It'll just yeah. free up more to do, arts and crafts.
0: <laughs> oh joy! Brilliant. <laughs> thank, Vicky. Thank you so so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure, and um, your story is is one which is very, very incredible. Um, How can people find you on social media?
1: So I'm mostly found on Instagram at Vicky Gooden, so G-O-O-D-E-N. I have a blog, which I've neglected um, in the last couple of years, but- You've uh, had had enough going on, haven't you? (laughs) There's lots of stories there about endometriosis and fertility and other people's fertility stories, and that's just VickyGooden.com. Um, and then for the book stuff, uh, yeah, I guess just follow me on Instagram. But also I have my publishing handle, which is BunBunBooksUK.
0: Amazing. Thank you very, very much again. Have a wonderful rest of your day and thank you for speaking to me. Thank you, Vicky, for sharing your amazing story with us all. I'm always so aware of how hard it can be going back over past experiences and difficult times, and I'm so grateful to each of my guests for their courage and strength to reflect on their story. Vicky has obviously gone one step further and written an actual book, which I just know is going to provide comfort to so many children and families. Thank you as always for listening. Please check out Vicky's book on Instagram at bunbunbooksuk, and I'll be back next week. Bye.